listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. By 1622, the English and Powhatan were living together. Powhatan came into town on an on a daily basis to trade and work with the settlers, as well as borrow tools, provisions, and even boats. Individuals were on a first-name basis with each other. The Powhatan were completely familiar with English settlements and daily routines, and they spent time among the English the way they would anywhere else in Sinacomoco. On the morning of March 22nd, there wasn't anything visibly different from normal. Just a little before noon, though, each Powhatan picked up whatever tool or weapon was closest and killed whatever colonist was closest. Then they ran into the woods as waves of hundreds of warriors emerged and swarmed the colony, finishing off survivors, slaughtering livestock, and torching the buildings. Some were killed at breakfast tables, others in yards, gardens, fields, or as they were running errands, and many were so taken by surprise that they died before they even noticed anything amiss. After four years of living together, the Powhatan had a good idea of where the colonists would be at any given time. They could make the attack as deadly as possible, moving quickly from one plantation to another and then disappearing back into the woods before the English could warn each other or regroup into effective fighting units. The warriors were mainly Powhatan and Pamunkey, joined by eight or nine other Powhatan-loyal tribes, including the Appomattox, Werriscoyaks, and Nansimans. There was one goal— to kill as many men, women, and children as possible, and destroy the houses, equipment, and livestock and property. That way, any English who escaped would then starve or could be killed later. A group of men was taken from John Martin's plantation and never seen again. In fact, his plantation suffered the highest losses of any site, with only 22 people left alive out of 140. Martin himself survived, but he soon left for England, permanently. On another plantation, 53 men and women died in desperate hand-to-hand -hand fighting. George Thorpe was warned of the attack, but he was so void of all suspicion that he refused to escape. His body was found mangled beyond the point of recognition as a way of showing pure contempt. Upriver, Thorpe's old neighbor John Berkeley was killed along, the, along with the entire population of his town. Across the river, the slaughter of 16 men doomed the effort to build a university. Ralph Hamer was shot in the back, but managed to escape and launch a counterattack. He and his men used spades, axes, and brickbats until they were relieved by a group of musketeers sent from Jamestown. Ralph's brother Thomas managed to bring 18 men, women, and children to his own place and help defend them until the attackers left. William Powell had arrived in 1607, but neither he nor his family survived this. Nathaniel Causey was another one of Smith's settlers. He was seriously wounded, but managed to scatter his attackers by splitting one of their heads with an axe. A man named Baldwin was able to save himself and his badly injured wife by shooting his musket repeatedly. And the wife of a man named John Proctor was a prim and proper gentlewoman, but she organized the men on their plantations to drive off the attackers. Closer to Jamestown, Yardley's plantations lost 27 people. 
Jamestown itself was spared, though, thanks to one boy who had been converted to Christianity and who was living at the plantation of a man named Richard Pace. The night before the attack, the boy's brother visited him and told him about the plot and instructed him to kill Pace, but instead he informed Pace of the plot, and after securing his own house, Pace rode to Jamestown Island to alert Governor Wyatt of the impending strike. It was too late to send out a general warning, but Wyatt defended the town and warned the nearby settlements. By the time the warriors arrived in boats to assault Jamestown, they were driven off by musket fire. In just a few hours, though, 347 people, a quarter of the colony's population, had been killed. Livestock were also killed, fields destroyed, and enough monetary damage was inflicted that the colony wouldn't recover for years. Only Newport News and Elizabeth City had escaped the violence. Sporadic attacks continued over the next month and forced settlers to abandon their individual plantations to find safety in larger fortified settlements. And only the larger settlements, meaning Elizabeth City, Newport News, Jamestown, and the three largest plantations, were left with any colonists at all. As the English abandoned the plantations, warriors came in and completed the destruction of their property. The attack was six years in the planning. If you've been listening since the beginning of this series, you'll remember that in the first episode, I said Opikonganu was always unique in his approach to the English, and I also said that he was possibly the man the Spanish called Don Luis who had exterminated a group of missionaries who believed that he had converted to Catholicism and was wanting to convert his people. Opie Konganu knew that he couldn't beat the English in open combat, and he couldn't defend his villages against the destructive raids the English used as retaliation for violence. But he wasn't resigned to defeat. He just knew that to exterminate the English... He had to build their trust, learn their settlements, and strike before they could defend themselves. He had to wait patiently, and then strike hard, and strike fast. Then, with the English weak, he could force them into another starving time, and finish off the rest, or force them to return to England. He had been shockingly effective. The colony was devastated. What livestock and crops remained were inaccessible, and the colony was, indeed, dangerously close to entering another starving time. John Rolfe died in this period, though we don't know exactly how, and at the same time the price of tobacco was falling in England, which made it virtually impossible to raise the kind of money needed to fix the plantations. In one day, the colony had gone from being a boomtown, albeit an unstable one, to experiencing the kind of devastation and failure that it hadn't seen since 1609. It was a smoldering ruin full of scared, hungry, and traumatized settlers. When news of the massacre reached London, three important things happened. First, the massacre raised a patriotic and pro-Protestant fervor that drew new investors. They sent large numbers of settlers to replace the people who'd been killed, and they helped to restart long-abandoned projects like the ironworks, viticulture, silk manufacturing, and experimentation with other crops and commodities. 
Jamestown had suffered the kind of Protestant trauma that the Huguenots had experienced at Fort Caroline and in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Second, the Virginia Company's public reputation collapsed. It went beyond exposing company finances and colony conditions. Rival factions exaggerated their allegations, and the Virginia Company was flustered enough by the PR fiasco that it issued possibly the worst response possible. They sent a letter to Jamestown saying that this was divine retribution for their excesses, and reprimanding colonists for having left themselves vulnerable to attack, and saying that their request for grain was perplexing because the company had told colonists in the last year that it didn't have any money. It said that the colonists would have to rely on their own resources, but that it would send a ship sometime in the next few months. The ship wouldn't carry corn, but it would carry some outdated arms that were unfit for use in Europe, but which could help them against the Indians. The company would also send 400 young men. Ultimately, the Virginia Company couldn't recover from the effects of the massacre, though, and within a couple years it had been dissolved completely, and Virginia became the first crown colony. The third result of the massacre was that the English ended all attempts and all pretense of trying to coexist with the Indians. The same sense of civilizational clash that Percy had felt after the starving time became a popular feeling, and the company's official London response to the attack announced that our hands which before were tied which before were tied with gentleness and fair usage are now set at liberty by the barbarous violence of the savages. Now their cleared grounds and all their villages, which are situated in the fruitfulest places of the land, shall be inhabited by us, whereas heretofore the grubbing of woods was the greatest labor. There would be no more appeasement, no more requirements to buy land from the Indians. Now they could, by right of war, invade the country and destroy the people who had sought to destroy them. There was no more responsibility to civilize an irredeemable people. They could never be trusted. Now they would be conquered. The Virginia Company compared the massacre to a bloodletting in medicine, something painful that would ultimately make the colony stronger. It ordered the colony not to move to another area, saying that it would be a sin against the dead to abandon the enterprise until we have fully settled the possession for which so many of our brethren have lost their lives. And to back up their words with actions, they ensured the heirs of those killed could claim their land in Virginia. Opie had expected the English to leave when he demonstrated his strength, but the attack only galvanized them. Jamestown had never been a matter of pride for England as a whole, but now it was. The English didn't have to try to balance self-preservation and fairness toward the Indians. Governor Wyatt made the expulsion of the Powhatan a priority, saying that they'd always been, at best, thorns in the sides of the colonists. The war that had ended with the kidnapping of Pocahontas resumed. Combat casualties were fortunately low, but one of the most notable deaths was that of Henry Spellman, who by this time was married to a Padawomic woman and who was captured and beheaded while transporting guns up the river. 
Wyatt drew on the success of Delaware Gates and Dale's tactics and organized raids on the Powhatan towns. This was devastating for the Powhatan, and meanwhile the English did succumb to starvation, and over a thousand died over the next few months. In early 1623, Apichapam, who was the official if not the effective leader of the Powhatan, sent two messengers to Jamestown with an offer of peace, saying that enough blood had been shed on both sides and that many of his people were starving as a result of the English raids. It was time to plant crops, and they would like to be able to do so peacefully. Apichapam offered to return English prisoners in exchange for the right to plant crops at Pamunkey, and he even sent a captive from a previous conflict named Alice Boys, and he sent her dressed like an Indian queen so that the English would know that she'd been well treated. The English knew they couldn't trust the offer, but they saw an opportunity to end the war anyway, so they agreed to meet. The beginning of the meeting was full of gestures of friendship and discussion of mutual hostility to Opikonganu. Both Powhatan and English made speeches and bonded, and when it came time to give a toast, Daniel Tucker brought out some sack. He and his men drank some first to show that no treachery was intended, and then they distributed bottles to each of the chiefs and their men. Two hundred Powhatan immediately fell sick upon drinking, and the English fired into the confused crowd, killing fifty more, including two Werowances. They even believed that they'd killed Opikonganu and Opichapam, and although that wasn't the case, they had dealt a major blow to the Indians. People in London criticized the treachery of the attack, but that wasn't a sentiment shared by Virginians. A year later came the decisive battle. Wyatt took 60 armored men up the Pamunkey River into the heart of Powhatan territory, 800 warriors attacked the English in open field, but despite their numbers, new and improved English muskets guaranteed an English victory. It was a dramatic last stand, and the Powhatan were defeated with the dignified bravery that so many Englishmen had noted over the years. Even Wyatt, who had condemned them as a cursed people after the massacre, was impressed by their valor. Sporadic hostilities continued over the next eight years, but Opikonganu knew that he was defeated that day. By 1625, Virginia was a royal colony. It was one of the last things that James did before he died, and one of the first things that his son Charles I did was to finalize that transition and affirm that Virginia's colonial government and property rights would remain intact. The London Company would simply no longer exist and no longer have a say in Virginia's affairs. And unlike his father, Charles announced that he wouldn't use Virginia as a pawn in political or diplomatic negotiations. There would no longer be the kind of top-down imposition of social and political structure that both the Virginia Company and, to a lesser extent, James had tried to enforce. Two decades after its founding, Virginia was finally able to grow naturally and organically into a new society. It was in this final era of Jamestown history that the Society of the Chesapeake took its final form. 
Jamestown had been an aristocratic adventure, a military camp, a trading post, a boomtown, and a struggling outpost. Now it was a stable, permanent society that would form the basis of not only Tidewater culture, but of Southern culture as a whole. In some ways, life continued in much the same ways we've already discussed. People grew tobacco, and when prices were good, the colony did well. When prices were low, it struggled. Life was hard, and people were poor. Indentured servitude made up the bulk of manual laborers, with people serving seven-year terms. A handful of blacks lived in the colony, working alongside other servants and occasionally buying their freedom. The Powhatan were mostly banned. The people who would act as governors in coming years have familiar names. Wyatt, Yardley, West, Berkeley. The seasoning period continued to kill about 40% of new arrivals, and it wasn't a case of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, because even if people survived, their health was devastated and they often never recovered. People who did survive the seasoning period and servants who survived their tenure had a great chance of striking it rich, but most people never made it that far. Virginia, again, was growing to be dominated by the people who found themselves forced out of English society. They were landed gentry and nobility, especially younger sons, along with the lower class. Like those first years of the colony, the merchant class was distinctly absent, except as traders running between England and Virginia. The trade routes they took linked Virginia with specific parts of England, especially London, Bristol, and Liverpool, while Yorkshire and Wales contributed disproportionately large numbers of settlers. These settlers brought their socially conservative values, thrift, self-sufficiency, honesty, neighborliness. As a crown colony, there was no company actively trying to populate the colony. But as people searched for opportunities at home and didn't find them, Virginia became an option, and in many cases a last resort. The lack of opportunity at home drove pretty much all colonization to Virginia for the rest of the century, and it led to some interesting migration patterns. Though most people came to Virginia through either London or Bristol, half of them came from the most rural areas of England and Wales. They simply moved to bigger and bigger towns searching for opportunities, and when there weren't any opportunities and their choices were either destitution or Virginia, they sailed west. As for life within Virginia, King Charles didn't dictate settlement patterns in Virginia, and land was cheap. Growing tobacco was the way you made money, and this led to a uniquely rural society. Colonists with enough money bought large tracts of land near convenient shipping routes so that they could trade directly with the merchants. Because colonists did essentially all their business with the England-based merchant mariners, there was no real need for market towns or centralized communities except for the capitals at Jamestown and later St. Mary City, Maryland. With the lack of centralized town, there came an inability to enforce laws or regulate aspects of settlers' lives. 
The Virginia company could pass laws, but because enforcement was difficult, people mostly just lived on their own plantations and within their own social networks, and they lived as they saw fit, and they didn't impose their ideas on the others around them. In the absence of the traditional town or community centers, and in the absence of any real governing authorities, a very unique kinship-based society emerged. In a way, this was very natural to the colonists. The nobility in particular had formed a kinship network across England starting in the Middle Ages. For the land should for the landed gentry and peasants living in rural areas, family was similarly fundamental to life and survival. None of them had been townspeople in England, so the transition was a fairly natural one. The difference was in degree. Now, those close and complex social bonds became the fundamental framework of a new society. This is a huge contrast to New England, which was built so strongly on the township structure, and populated predominantly by people who had lived in towns in England. Bonds of kinship minimized conflict and encouraged people to take care of one another. Even when people first arrived in Virginia, it was usually a friend of a friend or a cousin or an uncle's widow who would help them get through their seasoning period and adjust to life in America. Kinship bonds were also permanent, whereas family wasn't exactly. Men still outnumbered women by two to three to one, and women often married relatively late because they had to finish their seven years service first. Sometimes the women just married the people they were working for, which benefited everyone because the woman got out of her contract earlier and the man might not be able to find someone else to marry. Add to that the fact that they were living and working together in difficult conditions and they weren't seeing other people all that often and it was just an arrangement that tended to make sense. Like I said though, family wasn't permanent. Half of marriages in the Chesapeake in the 17th century lasted fewer than seven years before one partner died. A quarter of children lost at least one parent by their fifth birthday, half by age 13, and 75% by age 21. This meant that children bounced around among family members, step-parents, friends, and neighbors, and they grew up largely without parents but within that kinship community network. James Horn sums it up by saying that families were permanent, but their composition changed quickly. It was a system strong enough that courts rarely had to intervene to figure out who kids should live with, but it was one in which you might live in three different homes before your 15th birthday. There were no luxuries of English village life, like inns, taverns, markets, and local trade. In fact, through the end of the 17th century, even the wealthy people of Virginia had a standard of living that was lower than that of the poor people in England. This led to a leveling and simplification of social class compared to England. Like many aspects of life, it still existed in a way, but it was transformed in America. It's interesting to note that all of this translated to a lower crime rate, and 
there was virtually no theft in Virginia, whereas it was the most common crime in England. Murders and other crimes took place at a similar rate as England, and the only crimes which took place more in the Chesapeake than in England were related to premarital sex. Meanwhile, the vast majority of civil cases involved the issues of honor and reputation. Life in the Chesapeake was incredibly hard, but the society of the Tidewater region was strong enough to withstand the political and economic turmoil that would engulf England and its colonies through the rest of the 17th century. And it would ultimately grow to form the basis of a whole new nation. That pretty much concludes our story of Jamestown. It's not only been a story of the founding of Virginia or of the South, but of the new world experimentation of everyone with American ambitions. We've met religious dissenters, destitute workers, wealthy merchants, and struggling aristocrats. It's been the messy, bloody story of the birth of English America. In the next two weeks, I'm going to take some time to discuss the politics of the Virginia Company in London. In part, this is because the Virginia Company was a group calling the shots in Jamestown, and it's worth understanding where they were coming from when they made some of the decisions they did. And the struggles of the company are themselves interesting and worth discussing. I'd also call this the beginning of our discussion of the English Civil War in America. We see King and Parliament battling, and we end with Charles I's accession to the throne. We meet some of the bigger players in the English Civil Wars, and seeing how they conflicted during James's reign gives depth and nuance to the story that's often overlooked. After those two episodes, though, we're going to go back in time just a couple years to 1619 and the sailing of the Mayflower. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week.